This is the new Criterion. I'm James Pinero, executive editor. From the evening lecture series of the New York Studio School of Drawing, Painting, and Sculpture, we present a special edition of the podcast with a discussion on the life and work of Andrew Forge. Joining me on stage for this event, titled Parlo Come Pittore, are William Bailey, David Cast, Betty Cunningham, and Kyle Staver. The evening has been occasioned by the release of Observation Notation, Selected Writings of Andrew Forge, 1955-2002, to edited by David Cast and published by Criterion Books. We now begin with Leanne Maxey, the coordinator of this free lecture series, who will introduce the evening. Welcome to the New York Studio School in the Fall 2018 Evening Lecture Series. It is my great pleasure to introduce to you William Bailey, David Cast, Betty Cunningham, James Pinero, and Kyle Staver, who will be speaking tonight. James Pinero is a writer, editor, and cultural critic. As the executive editor of the New Criterion, he writes on Art and Culture Monthly and serves as the magazine's gallery critic. He's a contributor to a number of publications, including the Wall Street Journal, City Journal, New York Magazine, and the New York Times Book Review. William Bailey studied art at the University of Kansas, Yale University, and the Yale School of Art, where he studied with Joseph Albers. He is exhibited at Andre Emmerich Gallery, Robert Miller Gallery, and Betty Cunningham Gallery. He taught at the Yale School of Art from 1958 to 62, Indiana University from 62 to 69, and again at Yale University from 69 to 1995. Bill is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters and is a Guggenheim Fellow. David Cast was educated at Oxford and received a PhD in the history of art at Columbia. He has taught at Yale, Cornell, and now Bryn Mawr College, where he is professor of history of art and Eugenia Chase Guild Professor of the Humanities Emeritus. His work is focused primarily on art in the Italian Renaissance, architectural theory in England in the 17th and 18th centuries, and British realist painting in the 20th century. Betty Cunningham is a New York-based gallerist. Her first gallery was on Prince Street from 1972 to 82. In 1982, she joined Herschel and Adler Galleries, staying for 16 years. She later moved to the Robert Miller Gallery, and in 2004, Betty Cunningham Gallery reopened in Chelsea. In 2014, the gallery moved to 15 Rivington. She represents the Andrew Forge Estate. And Kyle Staver studied at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design and the Yale School of Art, where she studied under Andrew Forge. She won a John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation Fellowship in 2015 and has exhibited at Kent Fine Art, Stephen Harvey Fine Art Projects, and Tibor Dinaj Gallery. Her work is currently on view at Zerger Gallery until October 14th. Please join me in welcoming William Bailey, David Cass, Benny Cunningham, James Pinero, and Kyle Saber. Thank you. Good evening. Can you hear me? Right. A painter, a teacher, and a writer, Andrew Forge developed profound and varied connections with each of our panelists. He also connected, I know, with many people in this room tonight, and many of you deserve to be on this panel. I hope we will hear from you during the floor discussion. We've convened this panel on the occasion of a new book of Forge's selected writings called Observation Notation, published by Criterion Books, and edited by David Cast. The book retails for $20, and you can pick up your copy here tonight. Parlo come pittore, the title of this panel, meaning I speak as a painter, is how the Renaissance writer Alberti described his own writings. It is also how John Elderfield of the Museum of Modern Art describes the writings of Forge. A man of Kent, Forge, he says, belongs to the particular English tradition of painter-writers. Through Forge's words, Parlo, I hope tonight we can come to understand his art, Pittore, in a new way. When I say his art, I mean it expansively to include Forge's own painting, the art that influenced him, and the many artists that he influenced as a teacher at the Slade, Goldsmiths, Cooper Union, 
Yale, and here at the Studio School. As you may know, Forge was a dean here in the early 1970s and a curator of an exhibition in 2000, also called Observation Notation, two years before he died. Here's how we will proceed. We will begin by hearing briefly from each of the panelists as they draw their own lines of intersection with Forge. David Casts will then dot our canvas with the many points of Forge's immersive writing, and I will also offer some visual aids for that purpose. Finally, I hope our panelists will add their own color to our composition as a portrait of the life and work of Andrew Forge. But first, thank you to the New York Studio School, thank you to Graham Nixon, whom I celebrate on his three decades as dean, and to the staff and faculty for always speaking as painters and sculptors. Thank you to my colleagues at the New Criterion, Rebecca Hecht and Ben Riley, for stewarding this book project. And thank you to our panelists. It is truly an honor to join you here tonight. William Bailey, I wonder if you would now take us back to the beginning, or at least some years, to how you met Andrew Forge and to the role that you two played at Yale. I was the temporary dean of the Yale Art School, a position that I had not sought and was very anxious to get out of. And I had a deal with the president of Yale, then Kingman Brewster, a great man, that if I found someone, I had been on a search committee looking for a dean. That's how I happened to be a dean. I said, if I find someone, uh, I'm out of here. <laughs> he said, all right, it's a deal. So I had a short appointment there. And Al Held, a fellow painter and faculty member there, said, there's this guy at Cooper Union in a studio school, and this English guy, I think you ought to be in touch with him. Try him out, see. So I didn't know anything about Andrew, and I, uh, I called him and invited him to come to Yale to give a talk. He came to Yale and gave a talk. I was not particularly impressed by that first talk, I must say. I don't know whether it was his nervousness or mine but it doesn't stick in my mind as one of his great lectures. However, I asked him to come back, spend a day with the students, which was a great success. People really responded to what he had to say, found him very inspirational and helpful. And uh, things went along with more flirtation. Oh, I, I came to New York to interview him. And he and Ruth were living uh, on 2nd Avenue and 12th Street, about. 3rd Avenue. 3rd Avenue. <laughs> it's all the same. Uh, so I went up the creaky stairs to his little apartment. And. Uh, Bruce's studio was in the back. Was Andrew's studio in the back also? Well, mine was in the back, and Andrew in the front face the street, and Andrew's in the front, So he asked me if I'd like a drink, and I said, yes, I would very much. <laughs> so he came out with a couple of little cheese glasses and what was left of a pint of uh, scotch. And we chatted a bit, and I was, uh, the more I listened to Andrew, the more impressed I was with him. Andrew was a man of uh, enormous uh, dignity, I mean real dignity, and also modesty. Those two things are not so often together in one person. Anyway, I invited him to come up. I made an appointment for him to see Kingman Brewster. Now, you don't know Kingman Brewster. He was the one who defused great May Day riots and 
at Yale. He was the idea of inviting the uh, protesters onto the campus instead of barring the campus. He's a very progressive guy, which made a lot of old Yaleys very angry. He didn't like the fact that he wasn't uh, hewing the line, which meant, I suppose, some right of center. Not that Kingman was particularly left of center, but he was very progressive in his thinking about education, and he was very supportive of the arts. He, uh, as it were, Andrew arrived. I was to pick him up at the station and take him to the Brewster's house. Andrew arrived, and he'd been teaching all afternoon at the studio school. So he had charcoal on his face. <laughs> And he was wearing an old army jacket. And Kingman Brewster was a, something of a clothes horse. And so I was a bit concerned about this. <laughs> we arrived at the president's house, and Mrs. Brewster was entertaining some ladies' tea. And we were told to wait in the library that Kingman was on his way back from the city, he'd be there shortly. Shortly he returned and uh, introductions were made and I could see that he was giving Andrew the once over. And he looked a bit skeptical. Then Andrew took out his pipe and was holding his pipe, waiting to light it at some point and started to talk. And I could see Kingman, who was also an Anglophile, later ambassador to Court of St. James, I could see that Andrew was melting, or uh, Kingman was melting, and uh, I knew that this was in the bag. The problem was, was Ruth. Ruth had moved back to the city and wasn't really anxious to move to New Haven, I don't think. <laughs> and uh, so we wooed the two of them and were lucky enough to have them. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's how you get to be a dean at Yale. Yeah. Now, Kyle, you had the great fortune of studying under Andrew. And uh, an exhibition of your distinctive painting and sculpture quite different from Forge's work is currently on view at Gallery Zercher on Bleecker Street through mid-month. What role did Andrew play in your own creative development? I took a class with, with Andrew the first year I was there, and he would take us all over to the Yale Art Museum. Do, do we have a slide of that painting? I, I'll I wanted pull it up. to show you this painting. Um, he would take us all over, and we would, we would look at paintings, and we would talk about paintings, and Andrew would, would um, yeah, that you it. So we, we landed in front of this painting, and I said, it bores me. And um, Andrew said, oh, every time I think about Andrew, I have to do my fake English accent. Oh, really? You know, all right. And um, I said yes, and I asked the class to vote. Was this a dull as ditchwater painting? And I raised my hand, but no one else did. And then Andrew just kind of took me by the shoulder and he led me to the painting and he began to describe it to me, okay? And um, all of a sudden, the painting just started to come alive. It's like I'd never looked or I didn't know how to look. And then Andrew said this extraordinary thing, kind of maybe 10 minutes into it, he said, after a while, I can feel this artist's nervous system. And, um, and I could too. And I almost, I almost fainted, but it was, it was one of those like, moments in your life where the world has shifted. Do, do you know? And I, I, would, I would spend the rest of my life looking at paintings, but um, I now had this new tool that Andrew had given me. I mean, he really believed um, that you, you look with everything. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't from here up, do you know? And, um, Something Bill told me once, I don't care how you know a painting, I don't care if it's 
your sense of smell, and I thought, sense of smell? But there's something to that. Andrew had really taught me that it wasn't just th your brain. It had, to, it had to be everything. So that was an extraordinary moment. But he also told me, he came into my studio and I was working on these like really stupid, stupid landscapes. And he, you know, if you had Andrew in your studio, it took like half the, the half hour for him to get his pipe ready, <laughs> you know? And he'd be looking and you'd think, God, just talk, you know, come on. Um, and he said, um, you know, your paintings are very lonely lonely. They, there were no figures in my paintings. And um, so I put a figure in my painting and that, that began this whole thing. But Andrew had this unbelievable capacity to know how you languaged your paintings internally. Like he wouldn't say that to, you know, somebody who was a Neo Geo guy at the time, that your paintings were lonely. The guy would say, what the fuck, you know, what's wrong with you? But, but he knew, he, he could, he spoke many languages um, in, in the studios, and, and so that's, that was a really lucky thing for me. Terrific. Yeah. You know, Betty Cunningham, I first saw the paintings of Andrew Forge at your gallery. They're wondrous in their color and reduction, and no matter how much you look at them, they do not give obvious answers. How did you come to engage with him and his work? I guess the thing, I, taking off from what Bill said about his modesty, I think it's, it was a type of humility that he has, which um, I was struck by, but, and you can really feel it in this writing, uh, the fact that he kind of was always interested in the person he was talking to, he was always interested in the painting he was looking at, he was willing to do an all-white painting and put down the first dot. Um, and I think it, I think his painting, um, for me, Sorry his painting that. were the lead into his writing and to his teaching and it, to his conversation because he actually uh, would break it down and bring, as you noticed, he brings out from you as a painter. I find, I don't find him a historian. I don't find him a critic. Um, I know he's brilliant and very, very well read, but I think he's a painter, and I think he shares that with you, and it's incredible to read about another person's painting, whether you know the person or not, he'll bring it to life as if he's, he sits there quietly and paints it for you almost. Mm -hmm. So I, I enjoy that, and you asked me how I met him, I don't know, but I love the paintings and I certainly loved him, and we showed him at Robert Miller first. That's right. And then we, uh, showed, then we brought him along. Now, David Cast, I understand the story of this remarkable book begins at the Slate School in a friendship between Andrew and your father, the painter Jesse Dale Cast. I wonder if you'd tell us about that. Yeah, my father was an artist at the Slade who emerged in the late 1920s, which was not a very good moment to emerge as an artist. Um, and led a very difficult life, which is why I'm an art historian, not an artist. You know, this was the one thing I was not allowed to be. But he, he stayed with the Slade as a, an intellectual and social and artistic group, and that was where he met Andrew. And Andrew was always very supportive, and so when there was a memorial exhibition of my father's work, Andrew wrote some words that were very important, and that all led to my father's pictures getting into collections and so forth. I can't remember how I first thought of this project, but it was a long time ago, and I'm not gonna say it wasn't a difficult project, but it was, but I was always helped, especially by Ruth, in his sort of encouragement. Um, but it tied together my academic work, which has always been about the criticism of art, together with you know, my history in England and in this country. And it was a wonderful coincidence, and coincidences can make a big difference in people's lives, that Andrew came to Yale as dean when I was teaching there as a sort of humble assistant professor. Um, I was very nervous, I went to his talks, but I didn't introduce myself at first, and then I did, and he was completely gracious and encouraging. And actually, years after, when I was applying for grants, 
none of which I got, he always wrote nice letters for me, you know. That was, you know, and that's a terrible thing to ask people to do, but you, you, know, you have to do that. Um, there were two things I would like to say which are actually taken from the introduction, and the first one is from the first paragraph where I quote several people writing about what it is to do art criticism. And I begin with Clement Greenberg saying it's an incredibly difficult and unrewarding task. Um, then I quote Andrew with a lovely phrase, and this is so typical of his phrase, that maybe it's just like watching the clouds pass through the sky. You know? And then I quote Max Kosloff, who says it's sometimes just publicity for rich collectors. And what is so wonderful is Andrew's work was sidestepped all of that because it was about, and we've heard this already, about his intense response to works of art, to students, to colleagues, and that sidesteps all the other things that can be said for and against art criticism. And the other thing I'd like to say, and I'd I want to hear what you think of this, as I was thinking back and I was going through the texts from which his writings came, the publications of the British Broadcasting Company in the journal The Listener, which was a particular type of journal, I got quite worried about whether there are these, any of these journals now and what has happened to art criticism. Because, to put it crudely, any idiot can say anything he likes and it seems to have a certain authority. So what is the place? For Andrew, there was a very nice, intelligent audience to read what he wrote. Um, and I just wonder about what the audience is now and what the position of anybody writing about art now, what the position we can take. Um, and I think it's quite, I hate the word problematic, but it is slightly problematic. Well, you speak in your introduction, I was just going to say, you speak in your introduction of the, the range of subjects and the delicacy and openness of his language. And before we continue, I have brought some visuals so we can look at a little bit of this language, for those of you who don't have the book yet. David, do you want to read this or do you want me to do it uh, so you don't have an eye test? No, I can do it. Maybe I'll do it in the English accent. That'll be that. Please do. Please do. Okay. There is a wonderful generosity of vision here, and even this, although he might ascribe a key role to one part of the picture rather than another, it was never at the expense of any one aspect of his subject. And was this for the painting of the month? Yes, yes, mm -hmm. yeah. I should say this is a very complex essay, and as I said to Ruth, I don't completely understand it, but I know that it's saying very important things. Painting deals with the only issues that seem to me to count in our benighted time. Freedom, autonomy, fairness, and love. I mean, that's a... And there was no particular painting for this, yeah. but I, I did yeah. that. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Awareness was awareness of one's knowledge, of one's non-innocence. Yet awareness insisted on the pursuit of innocence and the playing out of a game that had to be lost. When Tchorkov changed, he was purging himself of the sweet poison of a double bind. Gosh, that's quite... <laughs> and, and this is yeah. in particular about Tchorkov's change from yes. abstract expressionism yes. to a more geometric style. Yes. Gestural, yeah. yeah, yeah. The history of representation is a history of models of the world. Hmm. The surface, thought of as the way he brushes paint, is indistinguishable from the surface thought of as representation. Wood, metal, skin, earthenware, hair, all have the same matte texture, unhighlighted, <coughs> intangible, there but not for there. Is this brushing or brushed? How or what? No, barely. It's 
Bailey. Is it? It's Bill Bailey. Is it? No question. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's you. Yes. There we are. It's so from it's an pretty good. I don't think I know. From a, it, that's from an essay, uh, a, studi um, a, um, a catalog essay for your exhibition in 1999 mm -hmm. at Robert Miller Gallery of these figures. And uh, the quote continues. It's so good. I've added a little more. One can only guess at the tension and turmoil spent on silent calm, or the hours this timelessness cost. The final mystery of these paintings is that we feel intim intimations of that energy, even in their stillness, and of intense life in their reserve. Mm. You can think of all Graham Nixon's paintings as representing a stage. Our position as viewers is in the seventh row center of the orchestra. <laughs> At first sight, these paintings are declamatory. Their aggressive, emphatic color, their muscular structure seems to promise vivid expression, but they are deadpan. This is their oddest feature as depictions they withhold. There must be painters who have never had to ask themselves, what kind of painter am I? But it is hard to imagine. Well, what can we take away from this writing, I wonder, in our understanding of him as a teacher? What we in the trade call an eye. Uh, he saw things, he saw the big picture he saw the minutiae, he saw the underlying structure, he saw the ambition in all kinds of painting. At times, for me, uh, I was appalled at things that he liked, that I disliked. Almost always, he brought me around. Taught me to see something in a different way, not my way, but another way. And Andrew was able to do that himself, to see, see paintings from in different ways and find things about them that were either interesting, appealing, or disgusting, or whatever. Although rarely was he a critical critic. I think he would, I don't know, Ruth would know better than I, how he would describe himself. To me, he was a painter who wrote. He was a teacher who wrote and painted. He was a painter who taught and wrote. He did all those things, and it was very hard to uh, separate them. And, and Kyle, did you want to add to that? I'm sorry. Did Andrew come to your studio? Yes. And, you know, I mean, rarely. <laughs> <laughs> and if he did, uh, it was not critical purposes. Okay. You, didn't, you didn't call him up and say, my painting's falling apart, please? No, 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 no. It would be a casual visit, and we would talk about whatever we were talking about. Uh, the same thing if I visited his studio. Don't you think it, appear, it appears that he got so much excitement out of seeing so many different things, particularly after coming to America, at least that's what I understood. And he would go to, whether it's obviously not America, but Giacometti, or, or you have him at various different studios. And I, I, and I think... He was so excited when he first and, came. And he went to each studio with the idea that I'm going to be challenged by this, and I'm going to find my way. And having the mind and the eye that he had, I think um, he generously gave up anything that had to do with expectations or style or uh, what you're supposed to do, and really worked with the artists to try to understand what they're trying to say. God knows that's hard. And I think, I think that's why he was able to um, write about so many different people. I mean, different, different yeah. types mm -hmm. of painting. And um, 
And I think the energy that you get out of some of his writing is, is incredibly remarkable because as good as it is, and as much as it sounds like Andrew, it really sounds like the painters showing you the way. Well, David, you mentioned that in your introduction that he wouldn't look to locate a painting within a system, mm -hmm. which is how I think a lot of criticism operates, but to account for the visual journey through the work step by mm -hmm. step. Would you, do you want to talk about that a little more? Well, all I would say um, to add to that is uh, his focus, which his students speak about a lot, of slow looking. And slow looking is one of the most difficult things any of us does. But he did this. And um, you look at a Rothko for four hours, let's say. Um, and nothing in our culture encourages that. But that's what he did. And um, that's a very precious, it, it, it is a, is it a gift that he had? I don't know, but it's, it's also a discipline. But then on top of that, as you said, a complete sympathy with the artist who made the picture. You know, we, we used to think that he was um, Andrew the Endlessly Fascinated, and when we were, he did, just everything seemed to interest him and excite him. So we, and, and um, there was a student that said, is there anything in this museum you don't like? Um, he took us to a, a pink-bottomed pooty paint, I don't remember the painting, and he just ripped it to shreds. <laughs> and we were thrilled, because, you know, we just thought, oh, Andrew, here's a cup, and he'd go, oh! And um, when he decided to unload, he was, because you know, as a painter, you worry about painters who like everything. Do you, do you know? Right? And I, th I think that slow looking is, uh, I mean, that's the kind of, his, painter, his paintings are about yes. slow looking. Oh, yes. Yeah. And they unfold in, in uh, all over ways so that you have to be engaged with them over a period of time and let them let things emerge and so much of of uh, painting that was contemporary to andrews and still is is about an initial uh, shock or a spectacle of some sort uh, that grabs attention and i think we see that a lot in the art world today uh, the good thing about the studio school is that it's not about that. And uh, I think that's one of the things that Andrew uh, brought with him wherever he taught and whatever painters he knew and, and uh, cared about. But he was also able to see the, the big moves and the spectacular things. Uh, uh, he was, in addition to that, Andrew was one of the two polymaths I've known mm -hmm. in my life. Andrew and John Hollander. Mm -hmm. uh, they knew about everything. Mm -hmm. We were walking across the top of Mount Subasio, mm -hmm. and I looked down at some little flowers. I was with Andrew, and I said, Andrew, Look at those flowers. I've never seen those. Oh, yes, those are. <laughs> and you knew the Latin name for them. And, and what counties in England they yes. grew in. Yes. Uh, well, David, you, you quote several of his students and the way he mm -hmm. taught. And he, Steve Hicks said that he gently and quietly coaxed an understanding of what the student was doing to suggest the assumptions, the intentions. Kyle, I wonder if that's your experience as well. Gently? Gently? Not so gently? Um, I had a, Andrew came into my studio and I had, at the time, um, I was making these paintings with lots and lots of marks. And Andrew said, um, I think that you should um, only use a hundred marks. Mm. And after you go to 101, there should be someone in the studio with a gun pointed at your head, and they will simply shoot you. <laughs> so, it's like, shoot me? I know, but I mean, it was, it, it came on a note, you know, popping on his pipe, and then shoot you. <laughs> so, uh, so he would say, um, I, didn't, I didn't, yeah, 
So did you keep it to 99? Just well, to be you know, safe? I did, um, and and um, I I couldn't. So I had another piece of paper where the extras went. <laughs> and Andrew was far more interested in the extras mm. than the, the hundred that I was making. David, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about his own painting more. You come to it a little bit in the book. and, and how did, what was Well, it is, I mean, we've spoken of this a few minutes ago, but it is painting that requires a kind of slow looking. Mm -hmm. And the analogy he makes when he writes about Pollock, that Pollock, it looks as though it's chaotic, but it forms in, it, there is a structure there, but it's a structure that you only see after looking for a while. Um, and that's true of his paintings. Um, his watercolors, which I like very much, I don't think it's quite the same. Ruth, is it? I bet. I did, yes, yeah. Yes, yes. Well, I wonder if you'd tell us how you made the selection and, and ordered the book. It's terrible to say I can't remember now how I did it, but there were these three categories that seemed to fall in place in which there were the... Because the, one of the first essays that I read by him, which I really liked, was Gentleman Impressionists. And this was about... Sickert and Steer, and these were painters, maybe only known in England, but not people didn't write about them at that level, and I was very struck by that. So I knew that the first part of the selection would have to be about his involvement as an artist in England dealing with France. You know, that's the issue. Um, so that's what the first section is all about. Then the second section is about wonderful American painters and European painters that he wrote about in the 60s. And then the last one section was about his friends and associates. Um, and that's how Jack Berto and William Bailey are in there. And that was how I, I thought that would represent his intellectual and artistic life as it went from England to Europe to the United States. One thing is that he never gave up on Sickert. No. He no. never uh, disavowed the Englishness of his painting. Yes. And I think that's an important thing. Uh, he was enthusiastic when he came to America and discovered Rauschenberg mm -hmm. and so on. But uh, and he didn't give up his the, the, the things that had guided him into painting to begin with. And that was quite complicated because there was another aspect of Englishness about landscape painting that he was quite troubled about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which makes his essays on Rubens and Pizarro very interesting because there was you know, the Festival of Britain in 1951 was all about Englishness and it was all about landscape in a very sentimental way. So he couldn't stand that. But at the same time, these beautiful paintings by Rubens and Pizarro were landscape paintings. So I think he struggled with that whole question in the early part of his artistic career. And he didn't, did he do landscapes? Ruth? Yeah. Did he do landscapes? Yes, yes, when he was working on um, Pickett's painting, he did a lot of landscapes. Yes. As well as Pickett's paintings. Yes, okay. And some of the dot paintings are yeah, well, sure. yes. Yes. horizontal, yes. and they're definitely. Yes, yes. They're all yeah. based on some relationship. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. a delight. Mm -hmm. That's April. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then there was the show yeah. that Andrew curated for the British Center at yes. Yale. Yes. yes. Yeah. Of contemporary, but that was the figurative. Yeah, yeah. 
which was a very important show. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Cold Stream. Yeah. David, I wonder, yeah. one theme that comes across in his writing is self-criticism. So I think as a, as a writer, he's looking for the way artists self-criticize, where they might edit down, the way they might go from 101 marks to 100 marks. The guy with the gun. The guy with the, yeah, a gun. What's your sense for the way Torkov, for example, criticized his own former painting and came up with that geometric style? Gosh, I'm not sure how I can answer that, really. Um, I'll, maybe I'll leave it to the audience to answer. I'm not quite sure. I'd have to think about that. Because um, that's not something I've thought about, mm, mm. among all the other things that I have thought about. <laughs> Well, this could be a good time for us yeah. to open up for the audience. Uh, <laughs> do we have a microphone? Right. So yeah. please do wait for the microphone. We'll go to Karen Wilkin first. Yeah. Um, I'd like to pick up on that last question. Um, you look at the history of Andrew's own work, uh, the chain, his rejection of the figurative work that he had been doing. Uh, extraordinarily well and with considerable attention and his complete dissatisfaction with that the wonderful thing he said about uh, picking up the biggest canvas he had and the smallest brush he had and making one mark on that canvas and feeling that that was the realest thing he had ever done it was a completely different attitude towards what a painting could be it's no longer a representation it was no longer making any direct allusion to what could be seen. It was a reinvention that was about experience in, a, in the, totally in the language of mark making and painting. If that isn't self-criticism, I don't right. know what is. Pushing the reset button Absolutely. And, a, and a bloody dot, is that what he yes. called it? A bloody, bloody one dot. bloody dot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then there were those, the lines that he called drumming as well. I mean, it wasn't a recipe, it was a a different kind of response to perception. You know, Karen, I asked Andrew if one day, if he went into a studio and the, stu the painting asked him to make you know, an arabesque or something, and I said, what, what would you do? And he'd say, I'd say no. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And I like that phrase, bloody dot, because I think bloody, there has to be the English version of bloody. It doesn't really mean blood. It's just no. a term of we abuse. We know what that means. Yes. <laughs> Slight term of abuse <laughs> and favor. So I'm wondering, as a teacher, um, Forge, what he got from his students. Um, Torkov always claimed that the change came from teaching Jennifer Bartlett at Yale, that the conversation with her, her dots, her grids, what shifted him from his expressionist mode into the later work. So I'm wondering, you know, Kyle, maybe you can answer this, like, or, or William, if, if there was some conversation that happened with his students where he gained something and shifted the work, or whether he was as rigid or, you know, um, clear about what his work should be. I'm just curious, because I think that's one of the privileges of being a teaching artist. I would probably guess that he had a great deal of self-knowledge. And he talks about all artists have an interior audience and they can take it from the 5th century or the 20th century. And um, I don't think that he didn't learn, but I think that um, I'm not sure he would back off and assign a specific thing. I think he would digest it. I don't know, Ruth, what would you say? I mean, that's, I kind of feel that you learn from everything. He was open to that. We talk about his humility or modesty or whatever, but, mm. but my guess is that, um, I, I don't know whether he ever I signed. Think I think that's very perceptive, Betty. Mm. I think he was, he was so tolerant and so open. Yeah. And um, how do we talk about his self, the criticism or his self, criticism in relation to that kind of curiosity and openness and going forward always with this, this it was always I, like going into some sort of unknown and just exploring. I think thinking of Bill Bailey, Andrew Forge, and Al Held at lunch 
Can you imagine? Can you? Uh, I know. It just is so interesting because they're both. They're none of them are groupies, and and so they create a group. No, they. And I find that so interesting to think about them and how much fending off groupies was part of the way they worked. I mean, I can see that. You know, the thing about Lisa's question is, what would Andrew have learned from, you know, his students? Uh, you know, my, where Andrew operates in my my inside, it, it, there's there's nothing I can imagine that I gave him. Do, do you know what I mean? I don't have relationships like that with a lot of people. But Andrew was something something else for me. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's even fair to say to Andrew, but I, I just can't imagine. He, he was like such a big um, everything. You know, he told me, I, I'm not a big fan of um, landscapes, and he, we were looking at landscapes, and he said, do you know how I look at landscapes? And I said, no, how do you look at landscapes? And he said, this might help you. I look for places to pee. <laughs> places I can scurry over and pee. And honest to God, to this day, when I'm looking, I could pee over there. It's, I mean, you just, I can't, he was, he was something else, and he always surprised me. And then we'd at lunch and someone would say, be saying something in, in a, just a completely different spirit that Andrew had been telling them. Not about guns and peeing guys, you know, that was, that was, that was what Kyle needed. Do, do you know, somebody else needed something else. But he could he could shift and give. I, so it's it's I, I just like I hope I gave him something, but I can't imagine it. Do, yeah. do you know? Yeah, I mean I have a sense when you're asking what he learned from his students. He does describe when he came to Yale that there was a kind of openness, and I think that's interesting because English artists looking at American painting in the 50s saw something. Um, and that frightened a lot of them. Um, but he spoke about America being a, an openness, and as I know both cultures, I can see exactly what he means, that there was that. So then he'd be open to what the students in America might say, as opposed to what the yeah. students at the slave might say. He obviously enjoyed the dialectic, yeah. you know, asking the question, asking the question, ask, which is what I think painting's about, and it's also about uh, maybe the way we think in America more than, but I think that dialectic is something that he was probably asking his painting. Well, yeah, it was. Yes, because he loved the students in America. They were eager to learn. They were more, more wanting, wanting to learn. They were open to I don't think, I, I'd like to know what Karen might think of this. I don't think he would have painted the paintings he painted anywhere but here. I don't think they would have happened in England of the late paintings. She doesn't think quite. But they, he would have painted his paintings in England. He would have only done the late ones here. Uh, um, I wouldn't dare try to get inside Andrew's head. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying not to but, right there. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, the paintings are so much about that kind of openness and um, response without preconception to, to pure visual experience and, and what it smelled like and what it felt like and what, what temperature the air was, translated into something that had nothing to do with um, representation. Could that have happened in England? I don't know. I mean, Tony Caro always talked about um, how important America was to him. And after he taught at Bennington for the, for the two years, he kept coming back regularly to work in Ken Nolan's studio because mm -hmm. he felt he could make better work in America than he could mm -hmm. in England. I just felt that very strongly. Better here. Huh. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Did he talk to you about that, though? I think there are people who look at paintings as things, and there are people who look at paintings as places. I think Andrew looked at painting as places. And that's mm. the way I feel about painting. Yeah. 
And I think, though it may seem extreme, I think Al Hell, from his later years on, thought about places Absolutely. rather than things. In his earlier paintings, they were about surface and manipulation and so on. But that seems to set him apart from other concerns, uh, stylistic things that have uh, been happening since time began. It wasn't about style. It was about the experience of painting. And he communicated that not only through his painting, but in his contact with others through his writing and through his teaching. There was a discussion, I thought, that Andrew advanced about, um, let's say, the skin of the painting or the presence of the painting versus the image or what it was. What it was. And so when you use the word place, um, I, I think that's right, except for that I, I find it more a back and forth between imagery and illusion and the painting itself. And so I kind of, I, I look at the skin of the painting and I think in that quote about your work that I very much felt that. Your that what? I very much felt that Andrew was saying about your work that the, the center of the work is the work, it's the presence. They're bringing forth something that well, is major. And I, and I think that's, um, I think that debate that we're all dealing with, since all art is abstract and we all know that, but um, is the difference between what's just a representation and what actually is a presence. It's giving you something else. I had the great good fortune of studying with William Bailey, um, Al Held, and, uh, and I was the teacher's assistant for um, Andrew Forge. And it was amazing. I. Um, after his classes, I would go to my studio and write down everything he said, because it was all stuff I wanted to remember. And um, I remember when he was talking about his paintings, he would start, he would say, um, I, I like to just start out making marks and traveling across the canvas and not having a preconceived idea about the image before I started. So it would be like a journey across the surface of the canvas, the dots would then start to um, make the image. And the reality was on the canvas. The reality of, of yeah, what he was yeah. doing was on the canvas. And I thought it was a wonderful idea of painting. But he also invited all the other elements of our lives to be in some ways involved in this. So you know, his comment on Roger Fry was that he admired his writings immensely, but Roger Fry limiting his comments, it seems, to simply the formal qualities of a work, left out all the other elements, all the emotions, memories, all the other things that we have when we look at something. So that afterwards, the pictures always got titles, right? As you know, they is Toady or April. So there are. It starts with one dot and moves to another dot, but somehow or other, there's more involved in that than simply one dot leading to another dot. Well, and, and as you say, criticism for him was a, a form of talking and thinking mm -hmm. about questions that mm -hmm. often seem so puzzling to him. The journey. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much. What a panel. Thank you so much. Thank you. We tell the story. That was very good. You were very good. You were good. You were good.